Michael, this is all very confusing. Pretty much everyone knows what life insurance is and the value it brings to your loved ones should the worst occur. But what if you have a policy that you just no longer have a need for? Most people don't realize that there is an aftermarket value for life insurance policies and fail to cash in on the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about a little known strategy called life settlements. I'm Remy Bartolotta, and this is On Markets, presented by Darwin Asset Management and Darwin Wealth Management. With me today are Senior Financial Advisor Michael Bartolotta and President and CEO of Abacus Life, Jay Jackson. If you have any questions, comments, or just want a shout out on the show, email comments at onmarkets.com or hit me up directly at remy at onmarkets.com. That's R-E-M-Y at onmarkets.com. And if you like our show, please hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Jay, you're a highly experienced asset manager. You've co-founded and managed multiple investment firms in the past, and you sit on the board of a number of very noble organizations. So my first question certainly won't be a challenge for you. Would you please explain in layman's terms what a life settlement is? Sure. And a very simple baseline definition. A life settlement is where you have the opportunity to sell your life insurance policy for more than its cash surrender value, but less than its ultimate death benefit. Effectively, what we're saying here is, is that your life insurance policy has equity value. And it's your property, just like your home or any other asset that you own. Yet, what we typically do is just give that option back to the life insurance company for whatever they say it is, without getting a third-party valuation or opinion as to how much that policy might actually be worth in today's value. So I, I think that concept is really foreign to most people. I know it's been around for a long time. But if you say to the average person, think of your life insurance policy like, any other asset. It's the gold coins you have in your safe or it's a share of stock or, or whatever it happens to be. I don't think that they can wrap their heads around that. The, the average person, some people can, right? I'm surprised actually how many people I talk to and they have heard of life settlements, yeah. but they don't really quite understand what it is. I always like to put things to sort of an analogy kind of form. I mean, what's the easiest way to get someone to hone in on what it really is? Great question. And I would look at it in looking at a case example of a case that we did so that people can really get their heads around this. We do a lot of work with people who are in anywhere from 75 plus all the way up to age 90. One of the recent cases we purchased, she is 90 years old, sitting in her community, her retirement facility. And at that point, she had run out of funds, could no longer continue to afford the $10,000 per month. She had a life insurance policy that she owned, $750,000. Her premiums were increasing dramatically. And her options were she was going to have to actually give away her life insurance policy for whatever cash she had left. The cash in the policy was around $10,000. For her to qualify for Medicaid and transfer into a new retirement facility, she would have to liquidate that life insurance policy and get the $10,000 from the life insurance company. However, fortunately, her daughter came to us and said, well, is it worth more than $10,000? than what the life insurance company is offering me. And in fact, it was. And in fact, her $750,000 policy was worth $100,000 to her cash. And then in addition to that, we kept her family on as irrevocable beneficiaries for $250,000. Most importantly, the solution to this was that she got to stay in her current facility, stay in her current home, and didn't have to go on Medicaid. And we see that happen time and time again. There might be a 75-year-old male who's sitting there saying, hey, I've got a million-dollar policy. My kids are now 55 years old. The reason I bought this policy is no longer the same as to why I would have it today. 
right? They're 55. They don't need that coverage for their, for their father. So in that example, if you look at it really simple, if you're 75 at age 88, 90, your lifespan is about 14 years at that point. A lot of people don't realize you're going to live that long, first of all, if you're 75. Yeah. Depends on life choices, a variety of other things. But if you're 75, you have a really high probability to living to 88, 89. Yep. And that policy, you're right, is worth a million dollars when you're 89 years old. However, what is it worth today? All it is is a really simple question of what's my policy? What's the net present value today? And it's not necessarily what the insurance company is offering you. Right. Remember, when you first fill out the life insurance policy form, do you know what you say you are? Healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the owner of that contract. That's your contract. The first time somebody sold a life insurance policy goes all the way back to the early 1900s. And it was a dentist in small town Nashville. And what happened was he took the life insurance policy as piece of proceeds so that his client could get dental work done. And at the time, the dentist did a lot of things. What was fascinating about that case, it set the groundwork in a landmark Supreme Court decision called Grigsby v. Russell. And Grigsby was the dentist who acquired this policy from one of his patients, took over the premium payments. Ultimately, three years later, Mr. Russell passed away. And when that happened, he went to collect the life insurance claim, right? Because he purchased that policy in lieu of services that he provided for this client. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was contested. The Supreme Court ruled on behalf of Dr. Grisby and said that life insurance is personal property. You own it, just like every other property that you own. So I feel like this is somewhat of a double-edged sword, right? When I hear this, I feel like this, this can be a really amazing option for a lot of people. And it seems like it can be either abused or used in somewhat of a nefarious way as well. It, it's an interesting point. I mean, let's start where it's used for the good. I think that we all see that. The thing is that from a nefarious point of view, what's really happened in our industry specifically over the last probably 15 years in this industry is that it is a highly regulated transaction. I'm the present CEO of Avacus Life. Avacus Life is the largest acquirer of these assets. To give you some perspective, we'll deploy, spend about $300 million per year buying these contracts. Just think about that. $300 million of wealth goes into typically seniors' pockets that they didn't realize that they had before. It's not a small amount of money. This is a pretty significant industry. And nearly every single state has a very high level of regulation around this transaction. All of the documents are regulated and approved by the state all of the beneficiaries also sign off on the transaction, which is really important so that the family is also involved in this. It's actually, the premise behind this is more about education and information. The sad part, what I think is the most nefarious part of this, $200 billion per year gets lapsed back to life insurance companies. And effectively that owner and insured received nothing, nothing. Here's what I'm thinking about, though, while, while we're having this conversation, right? We're having this conversation, and we're very comfortable talking about some third disinterested party owning life insurance on essentially a stranger's life, right? Yeah. And we're comfortable talking about it because we're from the business, we're from the industry. you know. But when I think back to the first time that I really heard about this, my first reaction was, man, I don't want anybody having a financial interest in my demise. And I, and I think that probably the average person, that is going to be the first thought that occurs to them, right? And how do you get someone comfortable with the fact that, you know, someone truly, it is in someone else's best interest if you die financially. 
how do you get somebody past that reservation? Because I would have it. I mean, you know, there's a little twinge of it still with me, and I've been doing this for years. Of course. Oh, yeah. Sure. I, I think it's a great question and a really good point. Something that we talk to people about regularly. The first thing we do is to be totally transparent with the information. To get someone comfortable, it's understanding that this is a transaction, a financial transaction, and here's all the components that go into that financial transaction. We just don't put our finger up in the air and say, this is what we think the contract's worth. And we give everyone the data. And the second piece is, we tell everyone that based upon that data, you should sit in our chair. You should be your own investor in this contract because this contract is valuable. And if you were keep this contract, understand, yes, you're going to have to put more into the contract, but from a percentage of return basis, if you want to maintain that level of return, let's argue 8 to 10 or 12%, keep the contract. And then lastly, we talk about counterparty risk. Who is the counterparty that's actually being a part and owning this contract? And I think that's really important. The counterparties today, um, and, and Mike, you bring up a great point for maybe 10, 15 20 years ago, where there were the kind of small funds that people like, gosh, who does own this? Who does receive this for the benefit? But the people who own these large pools of contracts are the same types of asset managers that own the reinsurance contracts on the other end, meaning they're some of the largest investors and in institutional investment banks in the world, including groups like Berkshire Hathaway, right? Berkshire Hathaway is a large investor in this space. KKR is a large investor in this space. Apollo is a large investor in this space. They also own insurance companies. They look at this as a hedge against their own. So for the benefit of some of our listeners that don't sort of understand the reinsurance process, right? Maybe we clarify that a little bit. If I go buy $10 million of life insurance from Nationwide, Nationwide may not hold all of that risk, right? They may only hold... $2 million of that $10 million, and they've called a reinsurance treaty with reinsurance companies that they'll put the other $8 million onto a reinsurance, Munichree or one of these types of companies. So I don't think most people realize that that exists too, right? So if I go buy $20 million life insurance from somebody, it's, it's rare that $20 million risk is, is all with that company that I'm paying. That's correct. In fact, our largest investors to date, I mean, certainly some of the firms I mentioned already are heavily involved and work with us very closely. We at Abacus only work with large institutional investors like that. I would share that concern if a neighbor came up to me and said, I want to buy your policy. That, that, that would be an issue. But these are large institutional investors that own these contracts and large pools of assets. But take a step further. You know who are currently some of our biggest investors? Who's that? Reinsurance companies and insurance companies. They're actually wanting to buy their paper back. Yeah, it's a better deal for them, right? Right. Because why can't a life insurance company just offer more money for this contract, right? So if the cash value is 10000 the net present value is 100000 why doesn't the life insurance company just give their client $100,000? They can't because they have to underwrite to the entire pool of that product. It's called adverse selection. They can't adverse select anyone, meaning if they did it for one person, they'd have to do it for everyone. However, we have the ability when we re-underwrite that case to determine whether that policy might be worth 100 or 200 or 300 based upon what the lifespan of that individual is. So now the life insurance company can use us as a facilitator to acquire that policy back for them and then still stay within the regulations so they're not impacting their adverse selection. So, you know, this business has come a long ways. And that now that nationwide example, it might be nationwide actually buying that contract back. 
the funny thing, Mike, is that you know you get the response of, well, I don't want somebody to have a vested interest in my death. But the reality is the second you get a life insurance policy, somebody has a vested interest in your death, even if it's the life insurance company that issued it to you, right? So there's always some other party that has a vested interest in your demise. Well, I think to most people, their thought is that that party is, is a loved one, is a family member that, with any luck at all, actually cares about you more than they do about putting, putting a little cash in their pocket. I mean, I, I would hope, anyway. Yeah. Maybe I should reconsider my beneficiaries at this point. <laughs> so it, it's amazing, Jay, You know how sophisticated this has become. I actually remember pretty distinctly the first time I actually heard of someone else buying a life insurance policy. I was... I was actually in the life insurance distribution business. This is probably 30 years ago. And I knew these guys that had bought a, a property and casualty insurance agency from an older guy. And, and he had done the financing. So they put life insurance on him. You know, in case he died, they would be able to pay him off, right? They paid him off. They didn't need life insurance on him anymore. But, you know, he had a, a number of health events. And so these four guys, literally just pitched in and said, you know, we're going to own this thing personally because this guy's not going to last that long, right? He's he's like yeah. 86, he's had like triple bypass and he's diabetic and he's got like 17,000 things wrong with him. So we're just going to pay the premium. And what they started to do is borrow the money out of the policy to pay the premium. And what happened is the guy ended up living until like 96 years old. And every year they would call me and they would say, is there any more money in this thing? Because we got to pay it off. And I'm like, dude, this thing ran out of money like five years ago. And they're like, crap, we got to come out of pocket again. So for them, it sort of backfired. It was really unsophisticated, right? They didn't really do any underwriting and so forth. But it is the first time I heard of that sort of concept. It's pretty wild how robust the whole process has become. Yeah, it's very much an institutional market uh, that large institutions utilize this. And, and that's, by the way, to the benefit of the person selling their policy. As you have more efficiencies in this market, it's better pricing for them. And what I mean by that is it drives costs down. It's more transparent so that they know exactly what their value is. We're going to start moving in this market to where there's going to be a very quick daily vow. We have actually a calculator, Mike, that I've built specifically for your firm that will tell someone six or seven different pricing options depending on what they think their health is and they get that valuation instantly just so that people understand that life insurance is truly an asset we pitch it when we talk to people when we first sell them the policy and now they can actually make it tangible and say got it this asset grows in value in time as it should right as you get to your 75 and you get to age 90 it's it's worth a million right but you've probably paid half a million into it and then at 75, it might be worth 100000 The thing that I'm trying to get to is that 92% of all life insurance policies will never pay a claim. 92, 9 out of 10 won't pay a claim, not because the carriers are refusing to pay, but because when you're 80, you just say, I don't need this anymore. The policy has served its purpose. Yeah, I meet with people all the time that no longer have life insurance, and they just lapsed it or they cashed it in like that lady for the 10000 bucks. This is just a better option. So if you own a life insurance policy and you either need the money or no longer need the policy, we talked about sort of what the option is. But what about for sort of the average Joe that says, you know what, I want to invest in life settlements. This sounds like a great investment and, and I want to get involved. Is there a way for the average investor to invest in life settlements? There is, but there's a lot of risk. I would caution any individual investor to go and try to buy their own life and buy a single or a small pool of life insurance policies because you're not able to receive the diversification. It's the same reason going back to the example of when someone's going to sell their policy and I ask them to treat it like they're the investor, right? They're the investor in their own contract. It's their asset. However, they have 
one life they're basing that investment on. So you have a lot of variability into how that contract can perform versus working with a large institution. We don't work with traditionally individual investors to invest directly into the asset. Now we do have products that we offer through Darwin and Mike that have the life insurance policies as a collateral back for other types of attached products to it. But any individual investor who's considering investing in this asset, they have to understand that there's a lot of volatility around this. And what I mean by volatility is, I think all of us on this on this podcast today, if we were to ask, say, hey, how long do you think your lifespan is? Because that's the most important piece to this valuation. It's the situation I just mentioned, right? The first time I heard of it, these guys that bought this guy's individual policy, they thought he was good for another couple of years and he lived like 12 or 14 more years. So you just, you really don't know. You don't know. And the only way you can get some certainty is to own thousands of contracts because now that smooths out the volatility. In any one contract, you have a lot of volatility. And when you own thousands of contracts, you don't have very much volatility. And so there are a lot of funds out there where they are trying to seek investors to come and invest in the asset for the same reason why institutions do. It's typically uncorrelated with other market conditions. It appreciates in value every single year as the person ages. However, at some point, remember you're paying into this. And so at some point you start to see some real volatility as to what your expected returns are. And if anybody's considering investing in the asset, they should have a financial advisor look at that in great detail first, because you don't want to invest in a fund that's small. You don't want to invest in some asset that where they're not able to acquire a large sum of these policies. And you got to make sure that their underwriting is really in tune. And those are the types of things that a firm like ours, where we have 50 people every day that just looks at the underwriting. And we do that from an institutional point of view. So Jay, at the end of each episode, we try to sum up what we've talked about and leave the listener with something useful. So I'm going to leave that to you today. Jay, tell us when it comes to life settlements, what's the bottom line? There's lots more to talk about, particularly you know, if anybody wants us to dive into lifespan and all those other fun things, we have lots of facts around that. I always joke, I'm a ton of fun at a holiday party. <laughs> you know? Depends on how you define fun, I suppose. So bottom line is, is that many of our clients are approaching certain ages in their lives. Decisions are starting to be made for them rather than by them. And what this very basic piece of knowledge provides them is the opportunity so that they can make some decisions, provide them some additional financial independence that they didn't realize that they had access to. It's just that simple. And we work with very high net worth individuals. We'll be purchasing a contract today of $75 million life insurance policy. This is an estate planning tool and everyone should know the value of their life insurance policy today. It may not be worth more than their cash value and that's fine too, but at least they know because this is as valuable as their home or any other asset that they own. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.